0: So this week we're taking a break sort of from covering a longer series and covering one issue of, uh, of the series Marvel team up from the 1970s. Uh, So that sort of for me raised the question of what's your favorite comic book team up or favorite comic book team ups.
1: Uh, Mine is kind of, a semi-obscure answer, which is probably not a surprise, but there's a, a, got it here, Brave and the Bold number 16 from October 2008. It was one of the uh, more recent series. Uh, it's Superman and Catwoman. And that's not a pairing that you see very often. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Wade writes the story where basically Batman's busy someplace else and Superman has agreed to take over Gotham City for like one night. And the police and Catwoman have stumbled upon this plan to auction off a map to an underground cave somewhere just out of Gotham, which is what gets Superman interested. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, it's a, it's written by Mark Wade. It's like a lighthearted romp. And, um, obviously it's about how these two characters don't really fit together and how they are socially awkward situations. At one point, uh, Catwoman says that, Oh, you know, Superman, you'll need a disguise to infiltrate this meeting of criminals. And she sticks him in like an unflattering wig and a big boxy suit and glasses but presumably she's never heard of Clark Kent before so she never puts two and two together. Mhm. What do you what is your uh...
0: um so I I guess this is probably pro- being a being a product of the 90s. This is throw back to those days, but maybe the most unexpected team up back then was Spider-Man and Venom when they right. had to team up to fight Carnage. Uh Back then, this was before Venom had done any anti hero stuff and was kind of Spider Man's arch nemesis. And I just remember being having my mind blown at that age (laughs) that you had a villain teaming up with a hero to fight a worse villain, even worse villain, yeah, which is now like I feel like half of television shows and, and movie plots.
1: It's a serial killer, but his victims are worse serial killers, so it's okay.
0: Hi, I'm Ryan McClure. And I'm Justin Zyduck. And welcome to Indefensible Inc., the podcast where we take a closer look at some notoriously and allegedly terrible comics and comic runs. And today we're looking at a deep cut, an inauspicious team-up between Spider-Man and Captain America in Marvel Team-Up number 13 from 1973, written by Len Wein and drawn by Gil Kane and Frank Giacolo. And uh, to give you a little bit of background, Len Wein was big in the 70s. If you follow comics history at all, uh, you might recognize him, his name from Swamp Thing, Hulk, Batman, Giant Size X-Men number one, one of the most famous X-Men stories of all time. And he also became famous for his work later as an editor. He hired Alan Moore to do Swamp Thing in the 80s and later became the editor of Watchmen. And then you've got Gil Kane, who is another 60s and 70s comics legend, he co-created the Silver Age Green Lantern and Adam at DC, co-created Iron Fist at Marvel, did a bunch of Spider-Man issues, including the death of Gwen Stacy.
1: So the original Marvel team-up was a key book in the Bronze Age of comics, that period in comics history that runs from about 1970 to about 1986, depending on who you ask. People have different starting and ending points. Uh, Marvel team up ran from nineteen seventy-two to nineteen eighty five, so it fits pretty nicely as like the quintessential Bronze Age book. Um the concept for the book is pretty simple. It's every month Spider-Man would meet and maybe fight another superhero for a bit. Um and then they would sort of get past their differences and work together to defeat a common enemy. Um technically it wasn't this format every month because there were some rare issues where it would be two other heroes like hulk and human torch or something but for the most part the format was spider-man and blank Uh, so it's kind of an interesting marketing proposition Um, spider-man was the most popular character at the time so fans would be more likely to buy another spider-man book anyway but having another hero sort of sweetens the deal Um, or if you don't usually buy spider-man but you do read like in this case captain america it's like hey here's a second captain america comic in september 1973 why don't you buy this uh, because it's a pretty loose concept, there's a bunch of different ways to do a Marvel team-up story. Um, you could put in a more obscure guest star at the time, like the original Ghost Rider, hoping that you would get uh, readers interested in the character that weren't already reading about. Um, you could introduce a new character and give them a high profile. Uh, they used a Marvel team-up story to introduce American readers to Captain Britain, who at that time was only appearing in UK stories. Uh, You could finish up a storyline from a book that got canceled, which happened a lot in the 70s and 80s. Um, That's what happened with an Iron Fist two-parter that Chris Claremont and John Byrne did to tie up the loose ends of that series after it got canceled. Um, Or you could do something sort of a funny stunt that you wouldn't ordinarily see, like Spider-Man teaming up with the Conan supporting character Red Sonia, or Spider-Man teaming up with Howard the Duck, Or and maybe this is a contender for an, an episode that we could do sometime. Um, John Belushi somehow comes into possession of a ring that villains are looking for and Spider-Man and the original cast of Saturday Night Live have to stop the Silver Samurai on live TV.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, it sounds like fun.
1: Yeah, But this, uh, this issue that we're talking about is pretty much just two popular he- superheroes team up against a bad guy. In some ways, this is sort of a typical issue that shows the advantages and disadvantages of Marvel team-up. And we will get into that right now. So the issue opens up with Peter Parker standing by the water, uh, brooding. And this is, so I can't tell, I can never tell. Like, I think that's the Brooklyn Bridge in the background, but I don't know if this is like New York Harbor or the East River. Like, I'm from Wisconsin, so I don't always know where these places are in marvel new york city
0: and most of my knowledge of new york city comes from comic books so (laughs) so we're
1: we're in the the same boat Mm -hmm. uh peter parker is thinking about gwen stacy who had died in the famous amazing spider-man 121 um just a few months previous Uh, this page has some hallmarks of bronze age comics you have um some overwrought third person narration um, they are no comfort. The waves lapping gently against rotting wood, wooden pilings, the brisk breeze blowing cracker crisp through tousled brown hair, the plaintive wail of rusty tankers returning once more to the clammy embrace of the sea.
0: So you got it's the atmosphere, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you get more more words for your for your dime back then.
1: Yeah, uh, you also get a. Giant Spider-Man head floating over the scene as though watching. Because I guess having a first page where there's no action might be less enticing. So what if you had a (laughs) 20-foot floating Spider-Man head right in front of the Brooklyn Bridge? And you have the lost art of thought balloons allowing Peter Parker to um, sort of theatrically mope about his current problems. Which, to be fair, his girlfriend is dead. So that's kind of a... I'll I'll give that one to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly a drunken Irishman appears and this is, this is not me making like an uncool stereotype. This is just like a fact in the portrayal. He's holding a bottle. There are little bubbles around his head and he goes, and I won't do an Irish accent. I'll just, I'll just transcribe it. Ear now, laddie, things can't be bl- as black as all that. The handle's Nathaniel, me buck. And I know more than you'd be, you'd be thinking. Eye lad, old Nathaniel's not blind now. I can see the sorry in your eyes. Fact is, I knowed it once or twice myself. So, come to your own conclusion.
0: And somehow it's still not as bad as some of Chris Claremont's accents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, if only it was a drunken gambit, I think it would, would be the best. Um, yeah. But here's a fun fact this character also apparently appeared in Marvel Team Up number two when the Human Torch was similarly depressed about breaking up with Crystal, the princess of the Inhumans. So, um, and he gave him a couple of words to cheer him up. So this is apparently this Nathaniel character's deal is that he gets really drunk, staggers out to the Harbor just in case there's any superheroes out there feeling down the dumps.
0: As someone of Celtic heritage, <laughs> I can say this is, this is accurate to what we do.
1: <laughs> uh, so, this guy, Nathaniel, he sort of sways around, telling Peter not to feel sorry for himself. And Peter's not really in the mood, so he just sort of, you know, Spider Man whips away. Uh, suddenly, what appears to be a burning meteor or a falling star plunges into the river. Nathaniel goes to check it out, and a mysterious, shadowy figure emerges from the water. Nathaniel reaches his hand out to let, help him in, and Nathaniel turns into stone. Um, the guy who came out of the river is the gray gargoyle whose appearance is almost sort of played as a mystery on page three where he's appearing in shadow but um he's on the cover so you should probably not be too surprised um gray gargoyle is one of those sort of henchman level villains who's fought pretty much everybody um he's a french scientist which you can tell because he has a little mustache um, and he has the power to turn anything he touches into stone for one hour after which point it turns back into its natural state and I'll repeat it here because it's going to be important later. It's been canonically established that it takes one hour from the time that you are touched, that you turn into stone, from the time that you turn back into flesh and blood.
0: I, I'm i actually kind of surprised that he that they held back and didn't give him a comically exaggerated French accent, <laughs> um, considering the treatment of the Irishman. Um, I am
1: the great gargoyle, no?
0: yeah. But... that's why did, that's why I didn't do the Irish one because it would have been, <laughs> been even worse he had that one in the chamber
1: yeah got in my back pocket
0: uh, I actually learned about the great gargoyle by reading the parody of him in Peter Porco's spectacular spider ham where he is known as the great gopher uh so I had a fondness for the character based on based on that
1: yeah I uh before I had read anything about Galactus, I had read a, a Spider Ham story where the uh, Marvel babies are captured by an evil pediatrician named Malpractice. <laughs> so it was one of those things where I actually read a, a Galactus and, like, oh, that was a joke.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a good gateway.
1: <laughs> so uh, after this interlude, we catch up with Peter, deciding to snap himself out of his funk by web slinging. Um, while he's changing from Peter to Spider-Man, he sees a real spider and yells at it. He goes, Stinking arachnid! If it wasn't for the radioactive venom of one of your kind coursing through my veins, my life wouldn't be in this lousy mess. So, like, Peter, people like to emphasize classic Spider-Man's youth and everyman charm, but rarely do they mention that sometimes he would just randomly flip out and do some kind of weird Christopher Lee monologue.
0: And it, it does harken back To the Ditko days where he'd he'd have similar moments where he'd go off and kind of sort of Ayn Randian, (laughs) uh, like, soliloquies about how great he was and underappreciated by the world and that kind of thing. So it's not not totally out of character.
1: There is definitely that issue where he tells the protesters to go take a hike, the Mm -hmm. college protesters. Yeah. so Spider-Man goes out as he often does, looking for um, action to distract himself. Um, he finds it and sort of cheers himself up by wailing on some bad guys. He describes New York City as a city as a city where uh, major crime occurs on the average of every seven seconds, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. Not going to fact check Len Wein's uh, statistics here. Nineteen seventy-three was a different time.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, he stumbles across some goons who work for. AIM, or AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics, a network of science criminals in the Marvel Universe. They are famously described as looking like they they wear yellow beekeeper suits, which I guess are radiation suits or something. Uh, He clobbers two of them and ties them up, takes off looking for the third guy, and he finds him using his spider sense, where he exclaims, wait a minute, it's tingle time. Uh... (laughs) That guy and a bunch more AIM goons are already being clobbered by Captain America. They yell, he's only one man. And Captain America responds, but one real man is all that's necessary to deal with scum like you. And Captain America is nothing if not a man. So,
0: 1973, everyone.
1: Yeah. They beat him up, and Captain America has a number of curiously antagonistic discussions. He calls Nick Fury and says, he's got a mop-up job down here for your boys, Fury. And Nick Fury says, they ain't boys, Winghead, they're men. And don't you forget it. And then Spider-Man makes a joke about Captain America having a cleanup crew and asks if they stack the bodies neatly head to toe. And Captain America says, that's not funny, wall crawler. Good, bad, or indifferent. Those were human beings we almost crippled back there. So a lot of conflict. Mm
0: And it is weird to sort of have superheroes in a basic action story acknowledge that they came they like nearly paralyzed these people that are fighting. It's like the real world impact of the violence (laughs) isn't something that they allude to often.
1: Yeah. I mean that's sort of why like you know, like in old comic books like Spider Man would punch somebody and there'd be like the little like maybe explosion sign or you know explosion symbol and like they'd get knocked back. Mm -hmm. And then like when you see somebody like punch somebody else and like there's blood coming out. It's like, that seems a little excessive. That guy probably just stole somebody's wallet and now he's missing three teeth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I definitely think there's a, as a weird, I guess it's sort of a, the style at the time of just sort of pumping in sort of pointless conflict where you can, or maybe Captain America's angry that Nick Fury chewed him out and is sort of passing along the, the hostility to Spider-Man. Mm, yeah, but Captain America and Spider-Man both get beamed up to the SHIELD helicarrier. Uh, one of the SHIELD guys points out that Spider-Man is wanted in connection with Gwen Stacy's death, and they all start fighting him for some more conflict, but Nick Fury breaks it up pretty quickly. He explains to Cap and Spidey that AIM was trying to steal three guided missile telemetry systems. Cap and Spidey stopped one group in NYC. Uh, SHIELD stopped another one at Cape Kennedy. and But somewhere in the Midwest, a third group got away. And I think I was very satisfied to have my area of the country finally recognized by the, by the coastal elites at Marvel.
0: Yeah. I, I just assume that the guards are too, too distracted listening to a prairie home companion. <laughs> if I know my, my Midwesterners, we,
1: we also have a wait, wait, don't tell me on NPR. So okay. <laughs> we have two radio shows that mm-hmm. we that we like, uh, Luckily, they have a homing beacon that will send or uh, lead Cap and Spidey to AIM HQ. Spidey says he didn't volunteer for anything, but Nick Fury says, Sorry, I just sort of figured you'd be interested in protecting your nation's security. Of course, if you're too chicken. Which, by Back to the Future rules, means that he instantly accepts. But, uh, for all that we tend to think of responsibility being the core of Peter Parker's character today... The original actual point of Peter Parker is that his natural instinct is to blow everything else off, but eventually his sense of responsibility compels him to stop the crime, right? Like, in the Secret Wars 2 episode, his natural inclination was, there's a, a riot going on in New York City, but there's a Muppet special on tonight. I think I'd really <laughs> like to catch that. That's my first my first go-to there.
0: Yeah, I, I think it just adds to the complexity of his character. Yeah.
1: It's- he was a lot more nuanced um occasionally being kind of a jerk
0: yeah it's it's not like a inconsistent characterization just because of the ep- the issue is slapped together it's Just you know it's depth yeah Len Wine will take
1: care of the next bit of summary for me let us mercifully turn away from Spider-Man's reply to being chicken and cast our gaze instead to a quiet corner of Flushing Meadows Park in the borough of Queens Where beneath the austere exterior, austere exterior—that's not meant to be said out loud—austere exterior of the old science pavilion left over from the sixty-four World's Fair lurks one of the many hidden headquarters of the organization known as AIM. Uh, Gray Gargoyle is apparently leading them, and he explains how he came to end up as a flaming meteor at the beginning of the issue. It involves a flashback to Captain America number one forty-two, in which Gray Gargoyle—I'm just quoting what. I haven't read this, but I'm quoting what how Grey Gar- Gargoyle recollects it. He got stuck in a granite missile and blasted into space, which I'm not totally sure of the aerospace uh, impacts of a granite missile. Mm-hmm. It's kind of goofy, but, like, isn't it nice to have footnotes that tell you where this logical plot twist happened and, like, not... Like, when we did Ultimatum and Cry for Justice, how we were sort of fishing around of, like, wait, did that happen earlier in the issue or was there a tie-in that i missed
0: yeah yeah it's a nice little bit of nostalgia having those having those moments in there all all it was missing was a smiling stand (laughs) right uh
1: so it turns out that the gray gargoyle got away by altering the missile circuits to create a radio transmitter to contact aim Um, i looked it up and the gray gargoyle is a chemist i mean i know that like in comics we tend to give scientists a lot of leeway as to like if you're good in science you can Mm -hmm. basically do anything but like if you're a chemist i don't know that you're rewiring rocket telemetry to into a radio
0: hey you know rockets they're made out of chemicals (laughs) think about it that way
1: and granite apparently (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh so the gray gargoyle and AIM are planning to literally take over the world, which you don't see of much nowadays. A lot more realistic goals in comics, I feel. But Cap and Spidey come crashing in. Uh, AIM goons shoot at them. Captain America blocks Spidey with his shield. Then Spider-Man shoots his web at Grey Gargoyle, but he catches it and turns it to stone. So even the web is affected by the stone power. Let's remember this. (laughs) Uh, Captain America says to leave the gray gargoyle to him because honestly, Spider Man doesn't know what he's doing. Possibly, I'm thinking that Cap Captain America also did not want Spidey to come along. I could see, like, if you're getting your mission from Shield, and Nick Fury is like, take Spider Man with you. It's like when you're you were a kid and your mom would make you take you know some other kid or your, your younger sibling along someplace.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's. I mean, uh, I think it's canon at this point that Captain America doesn't really like. Spider-Man, or he's at least annoyed by him. I think everybody's... I feel like <laughs> yeah, that everybody. comes up in other storylines where he thinks he's a good guy, but he's pretty annoying. Yeah. But Captain America makes an
1: unforced error, throwing the gargoyle into a line of electrical banks, and the one of the live wires takes out Captain America. Meanwhile, Spider-Man gets distracted and whacked in the head by an AIM goon.
0: If only Spider-Man had some kind of ability to warn him, <laughs> warn him about somebody sneaking up on him.
1: Yeah, it, you know, I I would imagine that the hardest thing about writing Spider-Man is that like somebody sneaks up behind you and takes you out is such a like a reliable go-to plot twist that mm-hmm. you like you forget that you have like oh that literally cannot happen with Spider-Man because he has a danger sense. I imagine like it probably happens with a Daredevil a lot. Like if you went if somebody will pay me to do this, I will go through every issue of Daredevil and find like all the things that like as a blind person, he would not you know, expect to see, but they, a writer like accidentally says like, Oh, she's, she's wearing a yellow dress. I was like, you wouldn't know that.
0: Mm -hmm. So I will uh, start a Kickstarter. Yeah. Start the Kickstarter.
1: I will read every issue of Daredevil and pick up on all the cited uh, references. And this will be of interest to No academics. (laughs) While Spider-Man is trying to get his head together after getting clobbered, uh, the Great Gargoyle touches him. And much like Jeff Lin, when you are gone, Spider-Man and Captain America both turn to stone. Nobody thinks that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Great Gargoyle reveals his plan. Using AIM's anti-gravity missile, they will release a satellite of Great Gargoyle's own invention that will zap entire cities into stone, and he will blackmail the world this way. So, again, I'm going to note, Grey Gargoyle, a chemist, not traditionally a field of study where you learn how to make uh, satellites.
0: Yeah, um, if I may attempt a no-prize explanation. Oh, yeah, please. He he somehow uh, like refigured his his brain chemistry to be smarter <laughs> so that he could do other science. I will take that.
1: I will, okay. I will, I will take that. Watch your mailbox. I guess I, it's really not my place to give a no prize, but I guess... Let me see who oh. edited, edited this issue. Um, Roy Thomas. So, <laughs> Roy, Roy Thomas, if you're out there, I think you owe my, my co-host a no prize. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, Grey Gargoyle chains Spidey and Cap to the rocket and starts the launch countdown. And he boasts, there is nothing Captain... Should I do this in a French... There is nothing Captain America or Spider-Man can do to stop it, for it will be almost an hour before the effects of my stone touch wear off. And by then they will both be quite dead. But we see in the the foreground that Spider-Man's hand is not made of stone, and he and Cap both swing in to save the day. So, we have a pretty classic old good old-fashioned comic book setup. Our heroes are put by the villain into a supposedly inescapable death trap, and somehow they manage to work their way out. Now, in a good comic book story from this time, I'm not even talking like super sophisticated, just like basically how these stories are supposed to work. The heroes should explain how they get out of this trap, right? Like, in this situation, the Flash would say that he, you know, vibrated his molecules... Uh, to undo the stone effect or Batman rigged something so that it looks like that he got turned to stone or he didn't, or he, mm-hmm. you know, hit the science switch or whatever. They did something. Um, yeah. It would probably still be contrived, but you have to say like, well, we've established the great gargoyle turned you into stone for one whole hour. We specifically mention it within the story. So here is how the heroes were able to work around that.
0: You're, you're establishing a, a contract with the audience yes
1: yes that's 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 exactly that's exactly, there's like a suspension of disbelief that is based on like the playing fair model but we don't get that uh, Captain America takes a stab at it uh, he theorizes and we are given the the footnote for this that he was recently injected with some venom that gave him super strength somehow and maybe that's uh, negated the great gargoyle's power. Um, side effects of this venom apparently include resistance to stone transformation, but that's, you know, I would, I would accept that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's on the level. It's comics. I'll, I'll accept that. Mm-hmm. Then he thinks heaven only knows what saves Spider-Man and that's it. <laughs> There's no Spider-Man doesn't question it. Captain America is like, boy, that's that. That's weird. Mm-hmm. But we get no explanation in the story as to, like, how that... I have to wonder how that happened. Did, did, did we lose a couple of pages in the
0: in the process? Uh, I bet you there's, like, a... There's been an issue written in the last ten years that goes back and fills in what happens in the gap between those panels. So I actually tried to look that up, because
1: I, I was wondering, like, did somebody... Did Len Wein follow this up in the next appearance of Grey Gargoyle, or did somebody else ever tackle this apparently Mm -hmm. it is the great unsolved mystery to this day in the Marvel Mm -hmm. universe if you are a a current Marvel writer listening to this and you are stumped for like what what story could I possibly tell with Spider-Man that has not already been told a hundred times before the answer is how did Spider-Man not become a statue it's not Mm -hmm. not not the greatest conceptual hook but um, a clever storyteller could run with it absolutely Pitching again. That's uh, uh, Marvel. That's indefensibleinc at, g- at gmail.com. Um, let's talk. But anyway, so we don't get an explanation for basically the the whole deuma of this issue. Um, and then from here, it wraps up really fast. Uh, Cap and Grey Gargoyle tussle for a bit. Um, a bit of chain that had been holding Spidey and Cap to the rocket gets wrapped around the Gargoyle's ankle. And the rocket takes off with him hanging off the back. And they're like, all right, that's done. Spider-Man in particular is pretty cavalier about this, considering what a grisly death you would expect. Being chained to a rocket going into space, would what a grisly death that would be.
0: Yeah, it, it would be grisly, but at the same time, it's pretty hilarious that this <laughs> has happened twice to Grey Gargoyle in like subsequent appearances. Yeah. He gets launched into space on a missile. And I just... It would be great if it were a recurring gag in Marvel <laughs> Comics. And, like, every time he shows up, he gets attached to a missile and launched into space. In increasingly un- unlikely ways. Uh-huh. He shows up for, like, one panel and gets his, <laughs> gets his cape or something caught.
1: Caught in the space shuttle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, so... Um, as far as they know, the Grey Gargoyle is either... Burned on the, you know, rocket exhaust or suffocating in the airless vacuum of space. And he's like, well, Cap, it's getting late and even a spider needs his rest. Keep your shield shiny hero. I'll see you around. And that's, that's the story. Spider-Man is quite done with this story as are, I, I feel we are. But like, isn't that satellite that can turn cities into stone still on the, on the rocket? Like, shouldn't we be alarmed about all this?
0: Uh, I mean, that's not, not Spider-Man's responsibility. <laughs> if he has wave has washed his hands of it, I think we can do the same. I think this
1: is, I'm trying to look through here. I'm trying to think of how much Spider-Man actually contributes to the story. I think this is maybe like that, what they say about Raiders of the Lost Ark. where like, I don't think this issue turns out any differently. If Spider-Man had just stayed home. <laughs> Doesn't mm-hmm. like Captain America frees himself from the stone with his super strength venom side effect thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets wrapped up in the chain. I think that's. I think that Cap pretty much had this one. I don't often want to say that yep. Spider Man should have done less, but probably could have gone home.
0: Yeah, he could have spent some time with. That. Well, I guess he was. Yeah. <laughs> he was mourning. That's a man. Wait
1: Too soon, man. Way to rub salt into it. <laughs> it's, So yeah, this is a, a you know a short, slight story, and presumably it was sort of put together. It was a last-minute job. Who knows? Because mm-hmm. there's no documentation on random Marvel team-up issue from number thirteen. Um, I promise that not all Bronze Age comics are like this, but um, I know that you are not necessarily like a student of seventies comics. What did you? How did you feel about this one? <laughs>
0: um, it it definitely. I think it would be would have been a good entry level comic to read as a young kid. So I had a, I had a, I think it was the Spider Man and Electric Company tie in comic right. book, which had Spider Man teaming up with Captain Britain. Um, and it was something fairly similar. I think they maybe fought Doctor Doom, which was kind of an upgrade from Gray Gargoyle, but <laughs> they just kind of uh you know, entry level and, and a good a good romp, I would say.
1: Yeah. That uh that electric company series I think is also where the uh the Thanos Copter meme comes from. Where you know what that where like th- there's a panel of like Thanos escapes and he's got a, a helicopter that says Thanos like written on the <laughs> written on the side.
0: Oh wow.
1: He's all about branding. Wow. Hmm. But yeah, I mean that's I mean like you and I are making fun of it as, you know, adults from the perspective of 2019. But yeah, I mean, this was sort of meant to be a, you know, you want to see Spider-Man and Captain America do stuff. Sure. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if it wraps up in a... But, but you know, at the, at the same time, I don't want to excuse that because, like, there are plenty of comics that you can find from this time where, like, the ending is at least... Like, any Batman story you read that's like, has an illogical ending, they at least, like, mm-hmm. try to sell you on, you know, maybe he could have done this if he had planned it out or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. just, it's the equivalent of this would be like Batman and Robin are like in some sort of terrible death trap that Riddler has invented. And like the trap just breaks mm-hmm. and they're like, well, we're free. So <laughs> we, we really would have been screwed there because like Spider-Man and Captain America pretty much would have been screwed here. They were turned to stone for another hour attached to a rocket ship. That would have been, this would have been a valuable comic for the death of spider-man and captain america but
0: right, right. So yeah, even apart. if you're not aiming super high you can do a little little better
1: <laughs> yeah um but yeah one of the things that so i wanted to talk about this because um i will pretty much buy almost any comic from the 70s or 80s that i see for a reasonable price and this was a dollar and i <laughs> bought it um but like Marvel team up does have like a lot of good stuff in it, but it's sort of a hit and miss series. This is a miss obviously. And you can see why. Cause like, this is like, a, like I said, like a captain America story that Spider-Man kind of stumbles into and doesn't really <laughs> contribute much to. Um, and a lot of Marvel team up stories were like that without ongoing subplots and a consistent creative team. A lot of fans started to feel, especially once fans sort of got older and more sophisticated in what they were seeking. Um, sort of felt like this book didn't count. You know, because like nothing in Mm. here really pays off. And uh, Marvel Team Up was actually canceled in 1985 to make way for a third uh, proper solo Spider Man book, Web of Spider Man, which was my favorite title of the Spider Man spinoffs. Not necessarily the book, just the title, Web of Spider Man. I thought that was, I thought that was, I was like, (laughs) yeah, I was like that. Mm
0: -hmm. I don't know why. So it's actually time for a new segment on the show. So, here's how it works. Justin and I are going to try to stump each other with a bit of bizarre and canonical comic book history. And so, this is Cannon Fodder. And so, I have a Captain America-related question to start things off for you. All right. The Captain American. Captain America villain and Nazi scientist Baron Zemo was defeated before he could unveil his major scientific breakthrough. This breakthrough was A. The Transspeed Modulator, an invention that allowed Nazi vehicles to travel 10 times faster. B. Adhesive X, a chemical that could bond with anything and could not be easily dissolved. C. A Compeller Beam, which controlled the minds of his enemies or D, Fibrex, a clothing material that provided armies with nutrients through their skin so they wouldn't have to carry food supplies. I believe it is Adhesive X, right? That is correct. Because
1: that's isn't that what's... His hood is, like, glued to his face, and that's
0: his supervillain origin, I think. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, he falls in a vat of it and gets his mask stuck on
1: it's weird that he's not covered in it, I guess. Cause if it's that sticky, that it literally like bonds your hood to your face. I won't worry about it. I'm not going to worry about
0: it. <laughs> yeah. There are no other, like he didn't
1: suffocate or anything. Just, just got some, some really, just really poorly placed adhesive acts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I have a question for you. Okay. Um, in a storyline in the flash um, from the nineties, Two Cosmic Gamblers come to Earth and force Wally West, the third Flash, to race an opponent. If the Flash loses, the Gamblers destroy the Earth. Who was that opponent? And I'm going to tell you that um, all of these are real characters, but only one of them was the opponent that he had to face.
0: Okay.
1: Um, A, the living embodiment of the Speed Force that gives Wally West his powers, an entity called Godspeed. B, Wally West's imaginary uh, friend from his childhood, a static electricity elf who lived in his radio. (laughs) C, Cobalt Blue, a villain with a mystical speed-stealing flame who was eventually revealed to be the literal evil twin of Barry Allen, the second Flash. Or The Glimmer, a 60-foot-tall speedster from a planet of primordial superheroes from the dawn of time called Wonderworld.
0: Oh... I so badly want it to be B <laughs> that I, I wonder if it's throwing my judgment off. Um, uh, but I'm going to go with my first instinct and say, what, what was the character's name for B? Uh, the
1: the static electricity elf.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, his name was Crackle. <laughs> and, and, and that is correct. Yes. <laughs> was. The idea was okay. that like one of your you know it was like you have to race this guy and if you if the flash wins the static electricity kingdom and the radio is destroyed and if crackle wins uh the earth is destroyed they they work it out <laughs> it, it, it it involves it involves them living on i guess all of our radios but
0: okay yeah i wonder if that uh impacts podcasts anyway <laughs>
1: Crackly, if you're, if you're out there, <laughs> I'm sorry for... I kind of like that story, but I'm sorry. This is a pretty, a pretty outrageous plot point.
0: Okay, I've got, I've got one more for you. All right. Uh, a Nick Fury question. All right. In a 2011 series, it was revealed that in 1961, Nick Fury and other intelligence agents, including Dum Dum Duggan and Baron Strucker, were brought together to form a secret organization known as the Great Wheel, Who was responsible for bringing them all together? Was it a John Lennon, b Nikita Khrushchev, c Nikolai Tesla, or d Leonardo da Vinci? Hmm.
1: Um. Nobody knew who John Lennon was in nineteen sixty-one, so I am going to go. I am going to go. I am going to. I am going to knock him out.
0: Okay.
1: Um. Leonardo da Vinci. Seems like he's probably dead, but maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's later Marvel history that I'm not as familiar with. I'm going to guess that it was Khrushchev and this was just a plan that really went awry.
0: It was a time traveling Leonardo da Vinci. Ah, deed. it always is. <laughs> yeah.
1: And for the last question. So, uh, Stan Lee had a notoriously bad memory. And in the '60s, he was cranking out so many books that he sometimes had trouble getting character names straight. Um, it's also possible that there were some lettering mistakes that he's editing 12 books and he doesn't have time to check everything. So, which of the so there's a bunch of mistakes in early '60s Marvel comics. Which of the following was not a mistake but was instead a plot point? Is it A? Doctor Bruce Banner being called Dr Bob Banner, B Peter Parker being called Peter Palmer, C Matt Murdock being called Mike Murdock, or D Doctor Octopus calling Spider-Man Superman
0: in his first appearance. <laughs> um I believe it was C Mike Murdock. That's correct.
1: And how is how is it that you know do you do you know what the what the story surrounding that
0: was? Um he, was it something about him pretending to be a, Matt Murdoch pretending to be his own twin brother? Yes.
1: <laughs> and he was like a it was the sixties, so he was sort of like a like a hipster doofus, you know, like where Matt Murdoch was very reserved, you know, Mike Murdoch would be like, Hey Karen, any more at home like you, pussycat doll? <laughs> Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I thought that was an appropriate entry for the um, curious and perhaps ill-advised uh, matter of comics canon.
0: Okay, we will. Uh, so we'll...
1: we're so it's so it's it's two to one, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I will be I will I will be tallying these out. Okay. And in our in our in our end of the year episode, I think I will I will reveal the final tally. Great! Great. I will I will fight every hour to. Work back that point that I... <laughs> <laughs> Obviously it was Da Vinci. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, so you, do you want to do recommendations? Sure. Uh,
0: so I will recommend a book that I'm currently reading. And uh, it's actually an ongoing, uh, I think, limited series. And so I'm reading Ed Piscor's X-Men Grand Design... And so so far, I've read the first volume, X Men Grand Design, and I'm maybe three quarters of the, of the way through X Men Grand Design, Second Genesis. And so, if you're not familiar with the series, basically, he uh, Pisker is taking these, uh, taking X Men history, and he's weaving in stories that were told much later that kind of filled in the gaps of. X-Men history or or explore unknown aspects of characters' pasts. So, if you're familiar with the term retcon, it's all about working these retcons into this one linear timeline. Uh if you're really into the minutia of X-Men comics and Marvel comics, it's definitely a an enthralling read. Uh it's also a good kind of crash course in X-Men history. Although I don't know if you're a new comic reader, how accessible it would be, um, but if you're if you have some familiarity with X Men, it's it's a lot of fun. The uh, it reminds me of reading old issues of Marvel Saga, which was nice. This comic that just pretty much chronicled Marvel history, jumping from one issue of say Fantastic Four to Avengers and and uh, interweaving all these different stories and i just could read those forever when i was younger mm. um the the coloring also i know you're somebody who appreciates uh old school oh yeah comics coloring and so he's using a technique that makes it resemble how comics used to look when they were printed on newsprint and so that hits all the nostal- <laughs> nostalgia centers for me and then it's also interesting to just see these different eras of X-Men history that were defined by very different artists uh, being illustrated by the same person with a very unique visual style. So I haven't uh, read the next volume yet. I think there's another volume out um, and maybe at least one more on the way, but it's, it's a treat. Yeah, it looks like I definitely have been meaning
1: to pick that up. Um, my recommendation is, so we were talking about a somewhat, maybe not if it's not regrettable issue of Marvel team up, then certainly not the, the series at its best. Um, if you want to see the series at its best, um, Chris Claremont and John Byrne, who, uh, is probably best known for later going on to do uncanny X-Men were the regular team on Marvel team up for a span in the, I think late seventies. um, and they were, you know, they were great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a bunch of different kinds of team ups. You had like Wasp and Yellow Jacket, Carol Danvers, Man Thing, Captain Britain, Iron Fist, Thor, Luke Cage. So you have a sort of a good mix of characters. There's a very famous story involving uh, Red Sonia from Conan comics, where uh, Mary Jane goes along to the museum with Spider Man, and she becomes possessed by the spirit of Red Sonja, because I guess they both have red hair, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's done in the spirit of fun and um it's a really good time. Uh, it's just like two guys at like the top of their game, still pretty young and like figuring out their way, but uh, just having a blast with Spider-Man runs into somebody else's story and running with it. Um, if you are interested in this sort of thing, they actually collect this in a trade paperback that I think is called uh, Marvel team up by Claremont and Byrne. Um, it includes everything except the Red Sonia issue because there's arcane legal stuff that they don't have rights to that or whatever. But um, if you're like me, you can go find uh, Marvel Tales issues in back issue bins and those, uh, you can get the Red Sonia issue that way and it will have the nice sort of old-fashioned uh, comic book printing that you know that I love so dearly.
0: Great, Okay.
1: So... That was a quick one for us today, but we hope you enjoyed it. Uh you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram at at Indefensible Inc. Email us at indefensibleinc at gmail.com with ideas or comments. Listen to us at the podcast homepage linked on social media or on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like us, follow us, write a review. This apparently matters to the all-powerful algorithm, and we are still fairly new at this. For Indefensible Inc. I have been Justin Zyduck.
0: And I've been Ryan McClure.
1: And you have a good
0: night.